incorporate a new kind of transparency weekday evenings at 6.30 here on Radio Catskill. Welcome to the local edition. Live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, I'm your host, Jason Dole. Well, January is almost over. Municipal property tax letters have gone out. Sullivan County Treasurer Nancy Buck joins us to talk about taxes coming up in the second half of the program. But first up, New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. Radio Catskill is partnered with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism and their recent journalism. In that, New York Focus has found that upstate New Yorkers are traveling almost three times as far for opioid treatment than residents of New York City. To tell us more about the discrepancies and disparities between upstate and down within the battle against opioid addiction and overdose, we have reporter Spencer Norris uh, from New York Focus. Spencer, welcome back to the program. Great. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me again. Great to be back. So you're, you're looking at the, the fight against uh, addiction and overdoses. Overdoses were really high last year in New York State. But you're also looking at the dis- disparities between upstate and down, as I said in the intro. Can you give us a bit of an, an overview of the story and maybe talk about how you came to this? Yeah, sure thing. Um, well, yeah, to your point, last year, um, projections were that uh, overdose uh, deaths were in an all, at an all-time high in New York State. Um, and, you know, I kind of was looking at this and uh, was considering it from the perspective that New York, um, to its credit, invests more in uh, treating um, addiction than just about any other state in the country. Um, I mean, the state has uh, a ton of investment into this issue. Um, so it was sort of this question like, okay, if we're throwing so much money at the problem and now we have this money rolling in from the opi- opioid settlement funds. Why are we seeing uh, death rates continuing to climb? Um, and, you know, it certainly seems like part of that reason has to do with the fact that the vast majority of the state um, appears to be a treatment desert. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we were able to get our hands on uh, some data from uh, the Office of Addiction Services and uh, Supports and um, after we ran our original analysis, we found that not only uh, do people that live outside of New York City have to travel uh, vastly farther uh, distances uh, in order um, in order to access treatment, but that distance is uh, also increasing over time, which is uh, perturbing that um, treatment is further and further out of reach uh, while the need is greater and greater. And you're saying further out of reach, like literally uh, farther away from where people are. We, those of us who live in upstate New York, especially the rural areas, you know, there's a lot of ground to cover with less population density. So in some ways, we're used to always having to, you know, travel a bit. That's not to 
justify any of this. That's just to explain the reality that we're already dealing with. But that's that's shocking to find that not only is that a hurdle, but that hurdle is increasing even as attempts to battle the crisis are increasing. Yeah, and I, I think that the important uh, bit of context here is uh, you're you're right. I live upstate too. I live in uh, the capital region, so I'm used to having to get into get in my car anytime I need to get somewhere. Um, but the thing is that specifically, we're looking at uh, methadone treatment, and in order to access methadone, it's something that you have to show up at a clinic for every single day if. Uh, you're going uh, if you're going to get it. You might get one day where you get a take-home dose, but if the distance is increasing for something that you have to go out of your way to do every single day before um, you go to your job, after you drop your kids off, and all that, that's a really significant factor in uh, whether or not um, people are able to access treatment. Um, and the fact is that we found that the distance that uh, people are having to travel uh, to access one of those uh, methadone clinics um, increased uh, about 60% um, from uh, 2018 to 2022. Um, that's just upstate. Um, statewide uh, increased uh, by uh, about, I think it's like uh, three and a half miles, roughly uh, equitable overall. But the point is that um, people are having to travel uh, pretty significant distance and those extra miles, those really count um, when it comes to people's everyday lives and being able to manage uh, manage their condition. Yeah, and in a condition in which sometimes it's hard to get people to e- even seek out help. You're talking about the hurdle that's being placed in front of people that have made the decision, say, I, I want to fix this. I want to get some treatment here. That's That's already a big step. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, um, everybody I've talked to about this um, just keeps reminding me on top of it already being difficult to find the resources in the first place. The extra hurdle really comes down uh, to stigmatization of uh, the disease. And methadone is different um, as far as uh, treatment options, as far as a lot of uh, different treatment options, because you have to show up at a physical location. You have to oftentimes wait in the line outside. Um, I mean, people from your community can see you going to the methadone clinic, you know, um, and because of the way that addiction uh, unfortunately still perceived in a lot of the country, I mean, that is in fact a significant uh, hurdle for a lot of people. So one of the things that you found was that there was supposed to be more methadone access and there hasn't been. Can you talk about uh, that discrepancy? Yeah, certainly. Um, the The biggest thing that New York has been doing to sort of try and innovate uh, when it comes to expanding methadone access um, has been these mobile medication units. And effectively, uh, that is a methadone uh, clinic on wheels. Uh, they put everything in the back of a van, and they're trying to drive to different locations in order uh, to expand access. So... Um, in a briefing uh, book that Hochul was uh, circulating uh, before the state of the state, she was advertising, oh, we have like several of these mobile methadone vans uh, that are operating now. Um, in reality, several means two. And both of those vans are in uh, New York City. Um, so the fact is that this was 
supposed to be an important measure for expanding access to people that are in like really hard to reach corners of the state, especially upstate. Um, the way this is shaken out about two years after the state first put out the contract and everything uh, to get these vans, there's only two of them operating and both in the most densely populated part of the state, which already has an oversaturation of services. So a lot of people are looking at this and they're like, what's going on? When are we going to get um, services uh, in our area? Um, there is a plan to launch uh, an additional, I think, nine vans uh, across the state at this point. Um, but details are a little sparse right now uh, around like what their routes are going to be and how exactly they're going to operate. What we do know is that some of those vans are going to effectively be working as like a stopgap measure for places that are already supposed to have methadone. Um, for example, there's one that's going to be running out of Ithaca. Um, and we spoke with the provider. They told us, well, one of the stops is just going to be the county jail, which legally the county jail is already supposed to offer methadone. So from that perspective, it's not even really expanding access. I mean, it's just fulfilling a legal obligation that was already in place. Wow. Um, you know, another thing that, that I'm wondering about here is you're looking at methadone. Uh, there was a big push last year to, uh, I mean, just overall make sure that people are taking whatever medication and get whatever treatment that they can. We were airing PSAs along this, uh, but part of that was emphasizing uh, buprenorphine. Uh, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, buprenorphine. It's been a while since I've had to say it out loud. Buprenorphine. There it is. Um, so what's the difference between that and methadone, and does the emphasis on buprenorphine uh, affect uh, what's going on with the methadone treatment? Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you, uh, you asked this question because I think a lot of people um, that aren't really plugged in might look at this and uh, say, well, you know, they're getting one medication, not not the other, but one might be as good as the other. So the reason that methadone uh, matters is because uh, we're now in an era of uh, the opioid crisis um, where the drug supply is both more lethal and more addictive. Now, buprenorphine uh, is great. It's a very effective medication in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also easier to get to people because you can prescribe it. You don't need to show up at a clinic every single day. So there's certain uh, advantages uh, to buprenorphine. But now that the drug supply has uh, gotten more addictive and more lethal, buprenorphine uh, isn't cutting it in a lot of ways. It has uh, what's called a ceiling effect, meaning that you can take more and more of it, um, but the limit of its uh, efficacy um, is going to taper off at a certain point. You won't um, get, any, get any extra effects from taking more of it. Methadone does not have that ceiling effect, um, which means that you can prescribe um, at higher levels to uh, adjust for people that have more severe addictions. Like I said, now that fentanyl um, is in play and now that... Um, uh, the drug supply is uh, so, more, so much more potent. A lot more people need a medication uh, that is going to more effectively manage uh, their treatment. Um, and this is based off of uh, some guidelines uh, that have um, come out by the academic research. Um, 
often, to be totally clear, buprenorphine will often work for a lot of patients, but this is a really uh, important other tool um, that a lot of uh, clinicians and a lot of patients just don't have access to in the overwhelming majority of the state. And you, you, you kind of started that answer off by saying, like, you know, this is the reality within the essentially the war on drugs, uh, does your reporting or, or the folks that you talk to, or is the war on drugs, in your view, to blame for these uh, drugs becoming more strong, stronger and more addictive? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. So um, I, I can't offer uh, my own opinion on the matter, um, but there is uh, this principle um, that uh, a lot of uh, people um, watching the war on drugs uh, have identified it's called um, the iron law of prohibition. And the basic idea is that if you take any controlled substance and you try to regulate it out of existence, it's going to lead uh, to more and more potent versions of the same thing coming out on the market. And I mean, this is true going all the way back to, well, I mean, prohibition uh, when the United States banned alcohol. Um, once uh, wine and uh, other spirits were sort of um, regulated out of existence, it led the, to the proliferation of moonshine, which was a significantly uh, higher potency. The reason for this largely has to do with the fact that if uh, you're operating in the black market, it's easier to transport greater amounts of the same material uh, with uh, less risk of getting caught. So um, according to the Iron Law of Prohibition, it makes sense that uh, as we regulated um, a lot of opioids out of existence, that uh, you want with more and more uh, lethal um, alternatives. Um, and that's why we went from uh, sort of oxycodone in the early days uh, to heroin and now on to fentanyl and different fentanyl derivatives. Uh, which can be hundreds or thousands of times uh, more potent than uh, than heroin was. So to answer your question, I think that um, there is a sort of theoretical ground that explains uh, why the drug supply is uh, getting more potent, and it does have to do uh, with uh, with the war on drugs. To get back to the disparities between upstate and downstate, one of the things that stood out to me in your reporting uh, was, uh, again, realizing like, well, of course, there's more people in New York City, so there'd probably be more resources, and, and it's a smaller geographic area. It's easier to get to them. Sure. But you identify that, that there's actually altogether some more folks outside of the five boroughs, and that even given that population disparity, there's there's still a disparity in treatment access. And then you also found that some of the counties in New York State with the highest overdose rates, overdose rates actually are having less access to opioid treatment programs than the other counties. So it's like, it's almost like an increasing scale of disparity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of what I thought at first blush when I looked at the data. I said, okay, well, you know, there's more resources in New York, but that makes sense because that's where a huge portion of the population is, uh, in the city, that is. Um, but to put numbers uh, to what you just said, I think it's like 43% of New Yorkers, sorry, 57% of New Yorkers live outside of uh, the five five boroughs, 
43% live in the city, but 68% of uh, all of uh, the treatment capacity for the opioid uh, treatment programs is located in the city. So, I mean, 43% of the people have 68% of the resources. I mean, that's a pretty significant disparity. Um, and you mentioned the fact that a lot of counties uh, upstate just straight up don't have anything. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Green County, I think, um, was the 11th highest um, for uh, overdose deaths um, based on uh, the most recent data I have available. Um, it doesn't even have an opioid treatment program. I mean, it is literally one of uh, the top locations in the entire state uh, for this crisis, and they don't have um, a program that's absolutely essential uh, to combating the issue, um, which this gets back to the reason why people are traveling uh, so far for care. I mean, it's not uncommon uh, to hear uh, stories where people are going an hour and a half out of their way um, on any given day just to reach their opioid treatment program, like another county or two over, then turning around and coming home for work. I mean, it, this is extremely disruptive uh, to people's lives, and um, it really impacts uh, their ability uh, to successfully recover uh, from their addiction. Now, has anyone else noticed these disparities, or is this something that you're just kind of breaking open this past week uh, with your reporting? And if people are noticing, is anybody starting to tackle this in some uh, policy way. Yeah, so I think that this is something that a lot of um, academics have uh, been eyeballing for a while. To be clear, this is uh, this is the case outside of New York as well. Um, what we are really trying to identify um, was what sort of the lay of the land was for our state in particular. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people, or at least an increasing number of people, are aware of the fact that um, there's been. Uh, this sort of emerging uh, gulf when it comes to the quality of treatment for people um, in urban uh, versus exurban areas. Um, as far as uh, whether there are policy solutions, um, I think that there's a few different things that are on the table. The methadone bans uh, that I mentioned are, uh, are one of them. Um, and uh, there should be more of them forthcoming, though, again, um, it's been a couple of years now, and there's only two running last time I checked. Um, there are a couple of other things that I know the Hochul administration is doing to try and expand access uh, to treatment. One of them um, is insurance reform. Um, I know that they're trying to make uh, the state's essential plan accessible to, um, to a lot more New Yorkers. But again, this kind of comes back to the problem. Uh, even if uh, you're able to get your insurance uh, to cover um, to cover your treatment um, at the level that you need, I mean that doesn't really help if uh, there is not a clinic anywhere in like a 50 mile radius, you know. So um, I think that this is uh, something we're going to see uh, the state uh, continue uh, to try and invest in. Um, but, I mean, we're sort of rolling back uh, the tide on an issue um, that has plagued uh, the state for the past, like, two decades and which we've set up our infrastructure to handle 
um, in a way that's very different than what the crisis looks like now with the emergence of fentanyl. Well, Spencer, I want to thank you for taking your time to go over all this with us. No, thank you. And the article we've been talking about uh, is called In Upstate New York, Treatment for Opioid Addiction Gets Harder to Find, and it is up now at WJFFRadio.org. It's also up at NYSFocus.com, along with all of uh, Spencer's reporting. We've been talking to New York Focus reporter Spencer Norris. Stay with us. Going to take a quick break and be right back. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Let's just get right on into it. This is Local Edition. I'm Jason Dole. And, uh, well, earlier today I spoke with uh, Sullivan County Treasurer Nancy Buck, uh, because they've gotten some good news about their department, of course, but also um, we want to talk a little bit about taxes. Here's that interview. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Tax season is upon us. Sullivan County Treasurer Nancy Buck is on the program now to share some insights into the upcoming tax deadline, discussing the county's new tax website shedding some light on recent recognitions received by the treasurer's office in Sullivan County. Nancy Buck, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I really appreciate when you have me on and we can discuss things that are going on in my office. I think it's so important to get the word out. Let's start off with some some tax season updates. When do people need to pay their taxes? And what should folks be doing now to get ready for that? So there's multifunction. So the first, we'll talk about the 2024 taxes that just came out in January. To pay them interest-free is for the month of January. Uh, and there, you can also, at each town, you could have pay, as long as you pay it by the 31st of January, you can pay 50% of the bill and then 25 in February and 25 in March if that helps out. The it's one percent in February and two percent in March. I do want to mention that each town has on their website a way to go in and get their tax information. It's different from the past as we got new software. Our other software was twenty years old. It was outdated and couldn't keep up. And unfortunately, we had to switch. It's been a um, a transition for both the tax collectors and for us at the county. But we're all walk, working through it and trying to help out the, the taxpayers out there and know that this is a better, secure system. Is that part of the reason why you have a new tax website as well? That's correct. That's why we have a new website. So taxlookup.net is still there for re- uh, back references for this year. And one town, the town of Fremont, stayed with them. The rest of the towns are on the new one. It's the Systems East, and that's all with the new website. And on the county website, under the treasurer's site, we have a list of all the towns and the website that you can just click on, and it takes you directly to the site. 
We're talking about people paying taxes that are for the counties, right? They're town and county taxes, that the bill that comes out in January, and that's why the towns are actually the ones that send them out in January, and they collect for three months. After April 1st, they turn it over to the county, and we're basically delinquent tax collectors at that point. Um, there's penalties and fees on it at that point. But the towns are made whole by the county by collecting for the three months. Their warrant of what they needed to be collected is usually collected by February 10th. And then they start turning money they collect over to the county. So when a a town has a budget and it's um, raised X amount is worth taxes, they get to pay themselves at the end of January. All right. So when people start getting these letters, that's the time to start acting uh, for the best outcome, right? So depending on what letter, the towns will send out a delinquent letter around March 1st, and that's only for that 2024 tax bill that just came out in January to remind them to pay. Once they turn it over to the county, I send out anything that came in unpaid. I send out a letter around May 15th and remind people, and then I send another letter out around September 20th to remind them again that there could be additional penalty to give them an opportunity to catch up before additional penalties get put on. That's all for the bill that just comes out in January. If we want to talk about delinquent taxes, that means a bill that came out in January 2023 or earlier, those are in the foreclosure right now. We sent out letters in November, and they have until April 1st to pay that completely off or enter into an installment agreement if that helps them out to make the payments. Any tools or things that you want people to know about uh, uh, the new process? Well, the one thing that is different, the town information has always been up on the website, on their own personal websites, town websites, and the county never had the delinquent taxes online before, and that is new this year, that if just like each town has their own website, the county has a website, and you can look up delinquent taxes on it. Uh, uh, and the only thing right now, there's not history. So if you paid a tax bill, that's not showing up there. But if you ha- have older taxes, th- they're showing up. And that's not something that was available prior to us switching the software in the fall. But things must be going well for you, uh, even with outdated uh, tech before this, because for the 33rd consecutive time, Sullivan County Treasurer's Office has been accorded the Financial Reporting Achievement Award from the Government Finance Officers Association. So congrats on that. you want to tell us a little bit about what that means? Thank you so much, and I do. So the, quickly, the Treasurer's Office is multifunction. There's four departments under the Treasurer. So we were just talking about the Tax Department and then briefly on the Foreclosure Department. And then I have Tax Map. This award goes under my Accounting Department. I have five employees in there, and I have one 
um, supervisor in there that does most of the meat, uh, you know, behind the scenes and isn't recognized for what she does. So I always bring up Shannon Armbrust so people know, you know, that's a name that if they call accounting, they can talk to her. They could talk to any of my staff. But that award is for 2022 for Excellence in Accounting. If you go on the county website under financial reports, it's called an act for ACFR, and it's 180 pages of all kinds of financial information uh, and, you know, information about the county itself. It's a great tool. One page is my favorite page. People always want to know the revenues and how much has it gone up. And there's a 10-year analysis of all the revenue sales tax, room tax, which is also called bed tax, mortgage tax. And you can see where it was 10 years ago and where it is today, well, you know, for the end of 2022. So it's a, it's a great page. And that's just one, again, out of 180 pages of information that shows our fund balances, it shows our expenses. It's a great document. Cool. So, so it's not, not just an award, it's a resource. It is, absolutely. And um, it's through GFOA, which is Government Finance Officers Association. You do have to pay because someone made a, a remark that, well, you're paying to get an award. But just because you have them review this document, they have numerous people that they pay that review these, their accountants, and they always come back with a couple items, like two pages, well, why did you put this revenue source here? You know, could it go over here? It's never anything big or we wouldn't win the award. They don't automatically give the award just because you turn in a document. It really has to be in great shape. Hmm. So, you know, we're an open book, open government. You know, we don't have any secrets to hide. It's all out there for the public to see. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to go over all this with us. you want to let people know uh, where the, the relevant websites are, the tax website, and how best to get a hold of you before we go? Yes, that would be wonderful. If you go on the Sullivan County website, go under departments and go under county treasurer. And when you go on that website, that portion of the county website, you can see other things besides how to get on for the tax, to find out the taxes. You can find out the town tax information. But we also have room tax. There's information on the room tax. There's and so it's really uh, something else that we do here really quick, and I know that we're pressed for time, is certificate of residency. That information is also on the county website under the treasurer's office, and that would be really helpful. And if somebody would like to call, the number is 845-807-0200, and we're more than happy to help them out. And if it's not even for my office, to direct them to the correct office. 
All right, and the county's website again is SullivanNY.us. That's SullivanNY.us. We've been talking to Sullivan County Treasurer Nancy Buck. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you. Have a great day. And that's going to do it for the local edition. We'll be back tomorrow evening to do it again at 6 o'clock every weekday evening for you, the local edition. And oh, don't forget, every weekday morning at 10, it's Radio Chatskill with Tim Bruno. Tim will be back with you tomorrow morning at 10. Up next, we've got the Daily leading into our great lineup of Monday night programs, including Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel and Laura Flanders show starting at 7. Um, for now, I just encourage you to keep on listening here on air or at wjffradio.org where we're always live streaming. This is Radio Catskill. Listen local.